So today we're going to look at emotions in the life of Jesus, and particularly last week we looked at the emotion of compassion and the overwhelming response of what compassion is. Please go back and listen to that if you've not had a chance. I would also tell you um, we're going to look today at the emotions in the life of Jesus as well. This is part two, and we're going to really look at this idea of how emotions were balanced, balanced and rightly displayed in the life of Jesus balance. Some would call it symmetry. Um, and I'll, I'll layer out what that means here in a little bit. Before I get into it, I do want to encourage your soul. Some had said last week this idea of being compassionate, this emotion of compassion that Jesus has. Boy, this is really hard. This is a tall order for everybody. How can I possibly have this? And I would tell you, this is actually normal. It's the mind of Christ. Being a compassionate person is an overflow of a life that glorifies God Thus, loves God, loves others, the renewed mind. This is the direct result of having a new heart through Jesus being your Lord and Savior. This is the norm, the norm for us. So the normal emotional uh, emotion of compassion, this deep from within, it's a normal thing. If you, um, in fact, I, I maybe just want to put your eyes on it so you understand just how revolutionary this idea of being able to be like Jesus and how God has transformed us. Just look over at Jeremiah 31. I just want to read this, Jeremiah 31 for you. Jeremiah 31. We'll be flipping a little bit. And then, and then i got to get to... But I just want to encourage you from last week. Some have, were overwhelmed at this idea of... So this is Jeremiah looking towards... Ultimately, the coming day when Jesus would bring to us the forgiveness of our sins, a new birth, a new heart, and the new covenant through his shed blood. Um, And he says in chapter 31, verse 31 of Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they break. They broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Verse 33. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. There was coming a day that Jeremiah prophesied when God's people would have the spirit of God through a renewed heart, a new birth. And it would change life. They would be obedient to God from a heart perspective. And let me cite to us this idea of compassion is a normal thing, a normal emotion. Because if we are called to be in the image of Christ, this is one of these emotions that is a prerequisite in our life. But I will tell you, this emotion of compassion, like every other emotion, it's a direct result of the idea of having Jesus, having the new birth. Have you, and thus you have the Holy Spirit. And then This life has now lived out to glorify God, to love God, to love others as we renew our mind. It doesn't come just naturally. We don't choose to just be compassionate because I want to be compassionate. If you've ever tried to be compassionate, just forcing yourself, it doesn't work very well. Or if it does work at all, it works for a very short time. But yet when our lives have been changed and renewed and transformed through him, it changes everything. So this thing about compassion last week, it is normal. It is ours. It is what God gives us. This is uh, the normal range of life. But I want to reach on today to something else when it comes to the emotions of Jesus. 
Jesus exercised the full range of all the emotions, right? The full range of it. He had anger. He had joy. Amazement. He even had sadness to tears. Grieving. He even sighed, right? When you read in the New Testament. He experienced sorrow. Zeal for God. The full range. And here's what I love. If you revisit Hebrews 4.15, it tells us, For we do not have a high priest who was unable to, you probably know the next word, what? Sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus, the high priest, the great high priest, who is in heaven right now, interceding for us, is able to even emotionally sympathize with us, even right now. Even right now. What you're going through He understands and knows what it's like. When you experience joy, he understands and knows what it's like. When you experience sorrow, he understands and knows what it's like. That is amazing. If there was ever a reason to drive us to our knees in prayer and dependence, if there was ever a reason to glorify God, it's this idea that even still today, he understands and knows. He sympathizes. The very fact that he could be in glory sympathizing today, doesn't that really give us some hope that we can do the same thing? For others. So here he is. He's sympathizing. Now I want to look at really the earthly life of Jesus here for just the rest of our message here today. And in his earthly life, there was this idea of balance and stability um, with his emotions. See, part of the work of see, Jesus, he is fully God, fully man. Although tempted, tempted as we are, but yet he did not have a fallen human nature. So sin came against him, but he had no landing there's no landing pad for sin even at a heart level but regardless he was he was truly tempted as we are and at the same time he fully glorified god he fully loved god thus he fully loved others when they asked him what's the greatest commandment love god and love others and jesus was unsullied by sin and the more unsullied by sin a person would be is the emotions of their life would reflect such things our lives are not like that if you remember the outline that we talked about that Dr. Babbler had given us with the 15 points, one of the, uh, some of the points made on that outline was, number two on that outline was, God's emotions are righteous, holy, just, loving, always appropriate. Another thing we saw that our emotions are not always righteous, just, loving, and appropriate. But here's the, the connection I see in my mind. Although my emotions are not always righteous, holy, loving, and appropriate, I have great potential to work the opposite direction of that. I have great potential because of the new heart, new birth, the Holy Spirit, the renewed mind to, um, to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what God's doing in my life. I, I will never hit perfection, but I have the ability. There is the mind of Christ's ability, the Holy Spirit within me that helps me conform to his image that I could perhaps many times Put on display emotions and God-honoring, glorifying ways, appropriate ways. Living in that balance of how God wants emotions to look in our lives. So there's all the potential for it. One theologian by the name of Cliff Pond in a book called The Beauty of Jesus says this. Part of the work of sanctification in our lives is to correct our extremes and overcome our weaknesses when it comes to our emotions. That means we are to become more like Jesus. So the more we love him, honor him, glorify him, when life is about him, the chief goal of life is to glorify God, our emotions will start to fall in line. 
And our emotions that come out of us will be a direct result of what's going on in our heart. When you looked at Dr. Babbler's 15-point outline, the last thing on the outline that we've been talking about over the weeks is when our focus is on loving God and loving neighbor and our heart is right before God, we can deal with our emotions in a God-honoring way. So when all of life is transformed by who Jesus is and everything's about his glory, our emo- the emotions that come out of us are just really showing what's actually there. And we will even display those emotions in the stable and balanced ways we even see the Savior display those emotions. For instance, if our neighbor loses their spouse, we should weep with that neighbor. I would say, if you can't weep with your neighbor, and I say neighbor, that could be the person next door, Neighbor can be anybody. Neighbor is someone in your church. Neighbor is someone you work with. Neighbor is anybody that you know, right? So just kind of know that. If our neighbor is having a baby and they were excited and joyful, right? I say, yeah, they will be. We should be excited and joyful with them. And, and, and I would say this. The very fact when we can't do that means sin has gotten to us at some level and we are unable to to glorify God and live in the moments as God has called us to. See, we have this idea sometimes that we think emotions are all bad. God has emotions. Emotions are bad. The, the problem is emotions often rule us or we let emotions be the true indicator of all of life. And really, emotions are, emotion, our emotions just really reflect, do we love God? Do we love others? Is everything about His glory? Am I being transformed and renewed through His Word and Spirit? So in the moment, sometimes people will say, man, I was so angry, I just... I just couldn't help myself that I was angry in the moment. I tried to, I, man, I tried to calm down. I tried to count to 10. I just still felt so angry in the moment. I couldn't help the words that I said to everybody. And I would say, well, that's because in the moment, you don't just, in the moment, that's not the time to start saying I need to control my emotions. It's really way before when there's a life of honoring God, loving God, glorifying Him. There's a life of the renewed mind when the moment of temptation to anger comes the anger that will be displayed, if it was displayed, will be righteous, holy, and just. That means such things as if our neighbor is crying tears and we don't make them feel guilty, like, suck it up, man. Why are you even doing such things? By the way, even this idea. I cannot tell you how many times I've seen people cry because they were experiencing a grieving emotion. And in that moment, that person will inevitably say, as they're crying and you hand them a Kleenex of some sort, they'll say, They'll say, I'm sorry for crying. You know, forgive me. I'm sorry. You know what I'm talking about? Right? They'll apologize. Let me just give you some freedom. You don't have to apologize for crying. It is not a sin to cry. Right? Now, I could say if you were sinning over something that was truly sinful and wicked and wrong and you cried over it, well, you really need to look at your heart. But on average, the person who cries has experienced some earthly pain, and that is a normal emotion. Our Savior cried, and you don't have to apologize for crying. It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a sign of humanity. In fact, I would say this. If a person refused to let themselves cry when an actual grievous moment had happened in life, I would probably say your emotions in the moment aren't reflecting a heart that fully wants to glorify God. You are being less than human. Jesus did actually cry. Now, that doesn't mean I'm walking around here saying like, man, let's just have a ball fest, right? Let's just come in and have a whole Sunday where we just cry for an hour. But we'll say, you don't have to apologize for crying. You don't have to say, I'm sorry. 
You don't have to, and for instance, even in the moment, here's one of the things. I'm, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get this message across today, what's, what's circling in my head and when I look in Scripture. But even this idea that sometimes when people, you get in a situation and people are crying. And if your heart is not focused on the glory of God, loving others, renewing the mind, looking at Scriptures from God's point of view, even when that person cries in the moment, you'll think to yourself, I got to do something to stop them from crying and feeling that emotion in the moment. I'm going to make a joke, right? Even the ability to enter in that moment and mirror them, mirror them. I think it's one of the things that we aren't, that we, as we grow in the Lord and life is not about us, but the glory of God. And when that happens, it's, it's an others centered life is that we even can try to mirror the emotions of the moment of the other person. If the person is weeping, the scriptures tell us to what? Weep with those that weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Why? It's that idea of mirror. It's that idea of life is really lived to the glory of God and for loving others. And even in that moment, the best thing I can do is if a brother is grieving over something, I will rest and grieve with him in that moment. Now, we won't stay there forever. We won't get into this pity party of self. But in the moment of expression, like I, I can actually do that or someone has something exciting in their life, even if I don't even understand that thing. I'll express excitement and joy with them. And if I can't, I'll try to understand why they are so excited and joyful in the moment. Have you ever been joyful about something and you expressed to somebody and it was, and you just felt like it was a brick wall in front of you? I would say a love for God, a love for others, because life is about glorying God, being renewed in the spirit of our minds is one of these ideas that, that even when someone comes up and is rejoicing, we will work towards this idea of why are they rejoicing and how can I get with how, how can I get with them on this train like what how can I find out exactly what's going on in their life what is this this is this balanced perspective of stability and emotions that our Savior has that even we have you even see this in marriage what's one of the great things about marriage is you you have to practice the range of things so much um, you have to do this with your spouses where if Let's say that your spouse goes out and goes shopping, right? And they find, like, the bargain rack, right? And, man, they, they find everything on the bargain rack is five bucks, right? And they find these gems, these hidden gems. Do I have anybody that loves the bargain rack? That you feel like, like, if you can find great deals and they work, it's like you've conquered the world for that day. So let's say they, they, they buy things on that rack and it's the things they want and great deal. And then you come home and... They want to show you what they've got. They show the deal that they've got. In the back of your mind, you're thinking, I could care less. <laughs> Is this getting close to home, right? Like, I could care less. I mean, you don't say it. I mean, right? Because that would be too unsanctified, right? You just think it. And you just kind of like look at them with that kind of glare. I know y'all know nothing about this. You look at them with that glare and just think, okay, let me just get through the next couple of moments because really, I really don't care. And you kind of walk on. And I would say that's really what we experience in that moment is really just a reflection of life is about exalting ourselves, not exalting Christ and loving others. And we make much of ourselves. When actually in the moment, we should actually try to, try to go, how can I mirror this? How can I experience the joy and pleasure that you're feeling in the moment? Let me try to walk on that train with you or let me... Let me try, or let me ask you questions such as, man, that's exciting. I can see you're excited. Tell me why that was exciting. Tell me, tell me why. Tell me the story behind this. 
So sometimes I just, I'm not sure that our emotions are always being fully explored. I'm not talking about this, this kind of sappy emotionalism where it's, it's, we'll see this sometimes. We see, even see this in marriage where um, you'll see one spouse almost demand a certain type of emotion from their spouse. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about this idea of we live life to such a way that it's all about his glory. It's all about loving him and loving others. And we'll, we'll balance and match things in the right perspective in the moment, just as our Savior did. Even this, um, look in John, James chapter 4. I think we even miss this sometimes when it comes to grieving over sin. You know, I've noticed James chapter 4. We're going to look at a couple different scriptures. Try to get this idea of Jesus lived very balanced as he displayed the emotions. And, and I'm not really so sure that we do a great job with it ourselves. I even see example that James encourages us to do it. If you look at verse 6 of James chapter 5, by the way, have you ever noticed that when people come to church, James chapter 5, I'm, I'm sorry, James chapter 4, you ever notice when we come to church, James chapter 4, if we sang songs that spoke deeply of sin and suffering, it's, it's almost as if people would get upset about that, right? Because they think when you come to church, you can only sing songs that kind of lift you up and kind of, you know, don't get me wrong, I like those kind of songs. But, you know, a lot of people don't, don't want to sing songs. Or they don't want to be in a place where people can actually confess their sin. Right? But look what the scriptures seem to point out in James chapter 5. Um, James chapter 4, verse 6. Man, 5's just in my head, guys. It's, once it's there, it's there. It says in verse 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to your to, to you. Earlier in the chat, earlier in chapter four, chapter four, huh? I said it, not five. Early in chapter four, it's talking about wars and rumors of wars, passions, why fighting happens. And now we're getting to the repentance part, right? For manifestations of sinful anger from our own fleshly passion desires that are evil. Earlier in chapter four, now we're getting to the repentance part. He says, now verse eight, draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Look, ver- look like some emotion here. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. It says, even when you're repenting over sin, like let the emotions fully, fully, fully balance and be where they should be. There, there shouldn't be this minimizing repentance and sin, even the emotions of it. Don't let your repentance be just emotions, but emotions are a part of it. And then he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. But we won't even like this, to be honest with you. We won't even like this. Even if someone were repenting of sin, even if we were to repent of sin, we would almost want to minimize the time that we would repent over sin. But even here it says, be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. The more we are walking with the Lord, we're able to do things like that. A sign that we're not walking with the Lord is even when it comes to repentance and confession, we'll almost try to make that real quick and real sweet. Kind of like going through a fat... We'll try to do it as fast as we can go through a fast food drive-through, pre-COVID, right? And like we, will, we won't even stay in that. We'll just leave it as quick as we can. Oh, but we'll, we want joy over here. 
but not even the emotion of weeping over our own sin. So it seems like we don't have a balance of this, and really it's the sinful nature. And we look at Jesus, who is perfectly sinless, and how he displayed even the same range of emotions, the same emotion, but different ways, shows the balance and perspective of our Savior. And the hope is in this message we'll somehow get close to this. Okay, are y'all still with me? We're just getting into it. Matthew 8, I'm going to try to giddy up and get on this, all right? Matthew chapter 8. I want two emotions I want to look at. And really, I was, um, there's a great book by a guy named uh, uh, Feelings and Faith, um, by a guy named Elliot. And in his, one of his chapters, he pointed, he pointed out this, these two examples in Jesus' life of his emotional stability I thought were just tremendous and gave me some great ideas on this. Um, one was even when Jesus would marvel, the emotion of marveling. And then um, also anger. I want to look at the balance of his emotional life when sin is not a part of it. And how that would even apply to our life. Even with this idea of emotion when it comes to amazement. Look in chapter 8 of Matthew and go to verse 5. It says this. Now I want you to notice in this text we're going to look at, we're going to look at the, the word amazement. And the Greek word for amazement here is the same Greek word for amazement that we're going to see in another text in Mark chapter 6. We, we find in this text, Jesus is amazed at their belief, at, their fa- at the belief and faith of the centurion. In the next text, we'll look how Jesus is amazed at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth. But same emotion, right? Amazement, but different perspective of the situation. But because he's devoid of sin... We see a righteous response. We see the full range. We see the balance of even the same emotion, how it's responded to according to the situation. Hopefully you'll see this in a little bit as we keep going. Look in chapter 8, verse 5. And when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. In verse 6, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him, Jesus says. Verse 8. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come underneath my roof. Well, here's a man that really understands his sin, isn't it? But only say the word and my servant will be healed. He understood the lordship of the one true king. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go and he goes. And to another, come and he comes. And to my servant, do this and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he, what does it say? He marveled. That's an emotion. He marveled. That word marvel means amazed, astonished, wonder, thamazo, right? That's the root Greek word thamazo. So he marvels at it. And he says, truly, I tell you that no one in Israel have I found, nowhere in Israel have I found such faith. Verse 13, and Jesus says to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. Your servant is healed at this very moment. Jesus in the text has the emotion of marveling, and yet it, he, he it is used in the right and appropriate way because all of Jesus' life is about the glory of God. It's all about loving God. It's all about loving others. And he marvels, but he marvels in accordance with what he sees. He sees great faith. He doesn't minimize it. He doesn't push it over. He points it out and says, look at this. This is what I'm talking about. Someone, belie- someone understands their sin nature. Someone understands my lordship. Look at this. He marvels at it. Now watch the contrast in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter, chapter 6. 
Mark chapter 6 and verse 1 through 6. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. This is Mark 6, 1, 1 through 6. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogues, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? Who, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? The people of Nazareth are surprised at his doctrine, what he's saying. And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown, among his own relatives, and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Just a side note, a light day for Jesus, right? <laughs> like, hey, he didn't do many mighty works. I mean, he healed a few sick people, you know, healed them, you know. Light day, verse 6. And he what? He marveled, same Greek word, because of their unbelief. The interesting thing is, two different occasions, same emotional word, two different responses based on the right and appropriate response in the moment. To the centurion, he notices the belief, the faith. He, he's amazed at it, and he responds appropriately to it because he's living a life for the glory of God and the good of others. Here, same thing. He's amazed. He makes a point. It makes a point that says he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, I want you to notice something interesting. People get confused about this. Verse 5. And he could do no mighty work there. Now, a lot of people would go, the reason he couldn't do any mighty work there is because of all the people's unbelief, which there's an aspect of truth to that. But here's what I find a lot of people do at this point. They'll say, the one thing God can't do is work where there's unbelief, right? That's their kind of thing. Like, the one thing Jesus can't do is unbelief, right? The one thing he can never work is unbelief. As if man's puny man, faithlessness, somehow controls God's sovereignty. Not buying it. Not buying it for one moment as I read through Scripture. Why is this here? I think we see, an, I think we see it here because there's, there's an appropriate emotional response. He could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. Why, why does Jesus not do many, many more mighty works there? Because of man's unbelief, it just holds him back his own sovereignty, what he's going to do, no. One theologian says this, the rebuff by the people of Nazareth, the rebuff so chilled his heart that the activity of his miraculous power was arrested. Meaning this, I would cite for you, in that moment, their unbelief and the audacity of their unbelief, even in the midst of he just does a couple miracles, right? Even in the midst of that, their unbelief was astounding and amazing to him. And it was so astounding and amazing that it almost like took the wind out of his sails in the moment emotionally and was like, we're done here for today. I'm going to heal a couple. So the people of Nazareth knew something was wrong. Right? There was an appropriate emotional response to that amazement in the moment. Because see, if you're the people of Nazareth and you see, you see that Jesus is going about doing all these wonderful things. I mean, he's not done here. There's more coming in, chapter 6. You start to understand he has a right response. He doesn't push forward. He doesn't push path. He doesn't go, 
well, you just don't know what's going on right here. He has an appropriate emotional response in the moment. Their unbelief kind of said this thing of like, hey, I'm done here today. You get what I'm saying? There's this uh, appropriate response. There's a balanced response. I'm not so sure in our same lives that we have the same kind of balanced perspective. And it's interesting. The same word marvel used in both texts. One, he marvels at their belief. The other, he marvels at their unbelief. And then his response is appropriate. He praises that belief and he is astounded by that unbelief. But here's the interesting thing. It's not like he lets it kind of stick with him to such an extreme he gives up. Because even the unbelief that they had, if you keep reading in verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. And then it says in verse 6, and he went about among the villages, what? Teaching. So he didn't stop his work. I mean, when you read further on in chapter 6, you find out that he sends the 12, right? Then you find that he feeds the 5,000. So it's not like he lets man's unbelief stop his kingdom work that he's doing. But in the moment, the marveling at their unbelief, it in the moment... Stop some of his work, not from any of man's sovereignty, but he has the right response to this grievous situation in the moment. Why is that? Because he's devoid of sin. But I would also cite to you this. We are to be conformed to his image. We'll never be perfect like him. But we can so love him, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, walk with the Lord in his word, that in the moment, the emotions that we display can be right and balanced and appropriate for the situation. Meaning this, if your kids, which this doesn't apply to any of us, I understand this, but let's say our kids in the moment have walked into some kind of sin or transgression, right? Is in the moment, sometimes we just want to be our kids' friends and we just want to minimize it so that, so that we can just kind of get past the ugliness of the moment But that might not be actually sanctified emotions at that moment. You might actually have to display uh, some amazement, some astonishment at the unbelief and the insincerity of the moment. Are y'all tracking with me? You might actually have to enter into that. It might be unhealthy if in the relationships of your life, people can never see that you are actually... You are actually grieved by something that they do. A lot of times in life, we just try to push past that and just want to get right back to the good emotional feelings. But Jesus rests in it. And says, not many mighty works. I mean, he heals a couple, but doesn't do totality what he's doing in other places because of their unbelief. It's interesting. And, and, but he doesn't actually let it ultimately railroad the whole entire kingdom process. He's still going about doing. He just pushes on to the next city and town. By the way, just a side note. Unbelief is a sin, and it's a sin to be unbelieving. God wants us to believe, confess, repent. And unbelief is a terrible, terrible thing in our life. And by the way, just a, also another side, side thought. Wherever there is unbelief, there typically is disobedience in our life. Most of our, our disobedience in life is a direct reflection of our belief. So we see here with the, with the emotion of amazement. Look how Jesus responds here. Now I want to look at another one. Go over to Mark chapter 3. I want to look at anger. Something none of us know anything about, the emotion of anger. We know nothing about this. Let me help everybody. Let me help ourselves understand anger. There is a such thing as being righteously angry, right? There's also such thing as being unrighteously angry. Most of the time, we're on this end, right? Most of the time. But what does righteous anger look like? Righteous anger looks like I'm angry about something done to God or others, and I have a righteous response. 
a, a godly, righteous kind of anger is, and, and it comes forth from a life that is focused on the glory of God, the loving others, lo- loving God, loving others, a mind that is constantly being renewed in the, through the word and through the spirit. This is someone who has the ability to have righteous anger. Unrighteous anger is when we are initially angry about something done to ourselves, and thus we, down from there, will start to have an unrighteous response. I will cite to you, most of the time our anger is unrighteous, and I can know this even in my own life. When I start to feel the emotion of anger, the first question I'm asking myself is, am I angry about something done to God and somebody else, or am I angry about something done to me, right? If the first answer to that is, Nick, you're angry about something done to you. Someone didn't listen to you. Someone didn't do what you wanted. Someone inconvenienced you. Any of this sounds similar, right? Like, and, and then I already know, like, Nick, you've got to start repenting. Like, something isn't right at a heart level. But there actually is the ability to be righteously angry. For instance, in, 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 in your own children, when you discipline them, there's really two ways to discipline your, our kids. When we discipline our kids, we either discipline them because... We just are inconvenienced by them. We don't like that they have dishonored us ultimately. And our next response won't be righteous. But if we actually discipline them with the idea of, I'm doing this for the glory of God and your good. I'm an instrument in the hand of the Redeemer. Then the next things that we do typically tend to be a lot more righteous in our discipline and instruction with our children. Let me show this to you, Jesus, how he handles anger in Matthew chapter 3. How he does it and walks through this way, the emotion of anger. Mark chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 says this. Mark chapter 3, 1 through 5. And again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. The Sabbath was made for man, not, not man for the Sabbath. It was there to help him rest and worship. But yet they were trying to use it in a legalistic way. Look in verse 3. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to him, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? And, or to do harm, to save a life, or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with, what does it say? Anger. Remember, we're not dealing with an unrighteous anger. It's a righteous anger. He was grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. His hand was restored. Of course, by the way, they didn't like this. It says they went out immediately and held counsel how to destroy him. But notice this. Jesus has righteous anger. He is angry that they have, they have misinterpreted and, and used God's law in a way that was not meant to be used. So he's upset with how they're using God's word and upset that someone wasn't being loved, right? And so Jesus, what does he do? He has a righteous response. He heals the man, man's hand. But his balance in the moment, he appropriately responded. His anger was right. See, Christians can have anger, but it's to be righteous anger because of what's done to the Lord and others and a righteous response. We see him even here. He displays anger. He, he uses anger. I mean, it says he is angry, and it says he is grieved at the status of them. Look in John chapter 2. I'll show you one that's really familiar. Jesus cleanses the temple. We really see that he did this twice, early in his ministry and, and late in his ministry. This happened two times. Here's another example of him walking in emotion, but walking in a righteous way in those emotions. He's the, he's the balance. I mean, even like we saw earlier, he could be amazed at unbelief and amazed at belief. You know, two different incidents and have a completely righteous response. And 
the thing I'm just trying to get our souls to understand is when it comes to emotions, the more, the more we glorify God, everything is about his glory. The more we're about loving God, which means we'll be about loving others, which is part of the renewed mind that we have through the word and spirit, we will actually display emotions in the right and appropriate balanced way. Whether it's we need to rejoice or admonish or be amazed or weep, we will display that appropriately. Now look in chapter 2 of John. It says in chapter 2, verse 13, this is early on in his ministry. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Verse 14. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Can I just make a side note? I don't think for one moment he was actually whipping the people. If you have spent any time with animals, you're, he, he was whipping the animals because if the animals leave, guess who else leaves, right? All the people that are selling them. Just so you understand, when this happens here, um, they're in the, what's called the court of the Gentiles. It was a place outside uh, Herod's temple there that Gentiles could come and see what the one true God was like. Gentiles weren't allowed inside the temple proper area. And so Gentiles who were supposed to be witnessed to by Jewish people, were supposed to see what the one true God is like. But basically what had happened is when it came time to sacrifice, all these Jews would come into the court of the Gentiles and they would charge these exorbitant rates as Jews were coming for something like the Passover. They would charge them a hefty amount of money to buy an animal for sacrifice. If they were trying to bring money to offer at the temple tax, it had to be it, the currency had to be translated into the local currency, so they would charge a up to a twelve percent, uh, a twelve percent kind of extra interest rate to exchange your money, so you could give it. Jesus walks in and sees all this rank commercialism. That really, in this court of the Gentiles, it's the glory of God is supposed to be shown by the Jewish people, and they're not doing that. They've just made it a consumer thing. So Jesus walks in and sees. What the, what the one true God is being on displayed in the court of the Gentiles, and he's pretty upset. He says that he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's a house of trade, just so you understand. He wasn't out of control. Out of control people don't say to those that have the pigeons, take these things away, right? He didn't, he didn't do that, right? He, they still had their pigeons. When he drove the animals away, they were still able to get their animals later, right? But he he drives them out of that temple area because it's not what God's house is about. His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house has consumed me. Notice this. Why did Jesus drive them out? Because he was concerned about the glory of God. He was concerned about others. God had intended his house to be something that showed forth his glory. Zeal for your house. And then it was a bad testimony to the Gentiles. And Jesus had thus a right and appropriate response. He didn't put up with it. He showed that I am God. I am the one true temple to come. And and then look what he says right here. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show for doing these things? Why did you, what right do you have to drive these animals away and to say we can't sell here? What right do you have to do any of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. 
So we find even here that Jesus basically comes in and says, I have every right because I'm Lord, I'm King, I'm the true temple, and I want all this junk out of my temple area right here. I want it out. What does he have? Righteous anger because he's concerned about the glory of God and the good of others. He has a righteous response. So my, my point that I'm trying to get across is that we are actually called to display emotions in a balanced, right way as well. Which means we should have righteous anger. Not that we're going to look for it, right? But we, when we display anger, we should display it righteously and appropriately. And we will if it's about the glory of God and the good of the other person, right? But most of our anger is really about our own self-glory. Which, just this idea. If a person is not glorifying God, thus not loving God, loving others, mind not being renewed through the word and spirit, this is the kind of anger that he'll have. Every time anger crops up, it's really just going to be because he was inconvenienced, didn't get something that he wanted, right? That emotion is going to go out of control. So we see something different in Jesus' life. He was able to display and put emotions on in a way that's totally different. Even, let me give you some prime, let me give you some basic examples. Let's take love. And we'll end with this text. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians 13. And we'll look at 4 through 7 and we'll, we'll, we'll be done for the day on the message. You know what's interesting? I, when, we, when we show an emotion, it's a direct reflection of our hearts. For instance, do you tell people in your life that you love them? Like fathers, do you tell your kids that you love them? I hope you do. But fathers, if you tell your kids you love them, but yet when it, comes, when it comes time to give your kid a hug or to embrace them in any way, do you embrace them like a limp noodle? I mean, like, or do you actually embrace them like someone that you actually cared about? Because I'm saying, this is how emotions work, right? When it's about the glory of God, the good of others, because the person is, because is, life is not about yourself, but about others. If you tell your kids, I love you, but yet don't want to talk to them, don't want to discipline them rightly, right? The Bible says if you don't discipline your kids, you actually hate them, right? That's what the scriptures tell us. You don't want to have anything to do. You don't want to talk with them. You don't want to have conversation with them. You don't want to do the hard things with them. You don't even want to embrace them. I would say they're probably going to question your love for them. Why is that? Because the emotion of love is not being displayed properly to the glory of God and the good of the other person. It's being displayed in a way that you feel comfortable yourself. Are y'all catching me here? The hope would be that we would display emotion in God-honoring ways that are appropriate and right for the situation. I mean, listen, your, your, own, your own wife or your husband, you tell them that you love them, but there are not tangible ways that you express that love, that emotion, no wonder they're going to question, does the, the verbal saying that you love me actually, I, do I see any expression of it in life? That was interesting is, I'm going to look at verse 4 through 7. This is the whole thing about love. And you know what's interesting in the love, the love passage here? A lot of us are frustrated about, man, I can't seem to do this. I can't seem to do this. You're right. But Christ in you can. This is actually what happens. 
Love, love is not only an emotion. It's an act of the will. It's choosing, but it is no less than an emotion. It's emotions are involved. And look in verse 4. Love is patient and is kind. Love does not envy or does not boast, is not arrogant, is not rude, does not, what does it say? Does not what? Its own way. Does not what? Insist. That's a life that's for the glory of God and the good of others, not about self, right? And look what it does. It's not irritable or resentful. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The emotion of love endures all things. That means it's going to bear with hard situations. Love does not, love is not always say, love does not dismiss sin as if sin, it's a kind thing to dismiss sin. No, it actually says that you don't rejoice in wrongdoing, but you rejoice in the truth. All that verse 4 through 7 actually talk about how to actually love. This is how Jesus actually loved, but this is actually normal for us. And this is a way to even look at the emotion of love ourselves. Is this the way that our love comes out? Is our love patient and kind? Does it not boast about itself? Is it all puffed up? Are we really about other people, not ourselves? Are we resentful and constantly bitter towards others? Our emotions of love aren't right when we're doing that. There's something wrong at a heart level. Our worship of God is not right. Life's not about glorifying God when it does that. So I don't know if any of this made sense in your heart and soul, but my hope for our church body as we just study emotions is that, man, listen, this final scripture, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was made sin. He's made us righteous in him. And even our emotions have the ability and the potential to always be shown in a righteous way. And I hope they are. Worship team, make your way up here. I hope that when you're angry, you're angry to the glory of God, for the love of God and the good of others. I hope that when we love people, we're not loving people in selfish ways, but we're letting that emotion, as we are living a sanctified life, fully manifest itself. And as we take a deep look at the li- at our life of how we display our emotions, it'll give you a direct reflection of, is the way that I display my emotions actually for, is my life about the glory of God and the good of others and loving God and loving others? You'll see it in even how we, trans- even how we show it. I'll tell you where you'll see it. The next time you say to your spouse, your kid, to your brother or sister in Christ, I love you but I'm never going to call you back, right? Doesn't seem like we're actually responding in a balanced way to that emotion. I love you, but I'm going to go ahead and sleep in a separate room. I love you, but I want to talk to you. I love you, but get out of my face. I love you, but I'm uncomfortable with human touch towards you. I would say that that's, if that's how we're actually displaying emotion, we're not displaying emotion to the glory of God for love of God and love of others. Can we pray over this? Stand together. We're so thankful for Jesus. I'm thankful for your life. This is what normal looks like. And if there's someone here who is far from God, has never repented of their sin, I pray, oh Lord, would you please save them? Would they be overwhelmed with even the emotion of their own sin and your own goodness to be their sin sacrifice. Let the atonement be true for their life today.
And God's people said, Amen.